0: We want to turn tonight again to Malachi's Prophecy, the last book in the Old Testament. And God willing, after next Monday's break, after Tom Moore has visited us, we'll take up our studies once again. Please do make these meetings known among your friends and fellow Christians. It's an encouragement to see as many people as possible here, of course, from the preacher's perspective. But the most important desire that we have is that the Word of God should go forth uh, to as many people as possible, whether that's through the recordings or through people actually gathering here. And you have partly a responsibility in that regard to let people know the Word of God is going forth in this place this very evening in this series. And that would be a great benefit if you could bring people under the sound of it. We looked last week at chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and we're taking up our reading tonight at verse 6. And God willing, if time allows, uh, we will get to the end of the chapter. You might say, if you allow it, we'll get to the end of the chapter. A son honoureth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, this is God speaking through the prophet. If I then, being a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests, that despise my name? And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name. And a pure offering, For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say, The table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness it is! And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. Ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a meal, and vieth the sac- and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts. And my name is dreadful among the heathen. Our title tonight is Priestly Compromise. You remember last week that I told you an introduction that most of the prophets in the Old Testament, both major and minor prophets, prophesied and lived in days of change. They were either days of political upheaval or religious turmoil, but one way or another they were times of transition and God chose them as his men to bring his message during those turbulent times. Now you remember, I hope that we mark, that Malachi found himself unique in this sense that he was the prophet of God in an uneventful day. And if you like, we could call it a day of small things. A day when great and tremendous things were not happening in governmental life, in the policies and politics of Israelite rule. There were not great traumatic changes within the priesthood or among the prophets. Spiritual life was mundane. There were no great signs and wonders that followed the prophets or preachers of God's word. And we said that Malachi, perhaps we could define it as he was prophesying during a waiting period. A period a bit like the one that we're in is the Church of Jesus Christ. We're after the apostolic age where we saw signs and wonders. We're after an age when the Word of God has been revealed to, it, to us. We have a full and complete canon of Scripture. And really we're waiting, as Peter has said, On the coming of the Lord, we look for our Savior from heaven, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are experiencing, perhaps today, what God's people experienced in Malachi's day. They were asking the question, has God forgotten us? Because we're not living in significantly spiritual days, We may start to question the promises of God and ask ourselves, is God really honoring his promises in our modern age, in our contemporary environment? And these people were asking those same questions. Zerubbabel and Joshua were dead and with them had died the promises of blessing. That if the temple was rebuilt and now it had been rebuilt, the people would know prosperity, expansion, and there would be a great return of the Shekinah glory of God to his temple, to the chosen city of Jerusalem. But lo and behold, it had not come to pass. The day of miracles passed as far as Israelite history was concerned with the passing of Elijah and Elisha. And people were asking, as in the days of Gideon, where is the God of miracles? Where is the God that our fathers Told us of. Now, the routine of the religious establishment, religious rites and practices were continuing. But everybody in the nation, including the ecclesiastical hierarchy, would have to admit that there was no meaning behind it. It was powerless. The unction and Shekinah glory of God had departed from Israel. Individuals and leaders. In the nation, we're asking, where is God? They were becoming disillusioned. And some of them were even going as far as to ask the question, does it really matter if we serve God, if we honor him or not? Because of that, some of them were losing their faith. Now, we saw last week that this book of Malachi 4, chapters 3 in the Hebrew Bible takes the format of a dialogue a hypothetical dialogue that the prophet writes, which has God, first of all, charging Israel with a breach of their covenant relationship with him. We saw it last week, where God pronounces his love for his people, and he charges them with breaking the covenant with them of love. They have not reciprocated the love that he has shown towards them. And the second stage in this dialogue that we find is that the people give a response demanding from God evidence for the grounds of his accusation towards them. And we find it couched in this word continually through the book, wherein, in the first five verses, they reply to God's pronouncement of love to them, wherein have you loved us? In other words, prove it. Where is the evidence of your love to us in our lives? Today And then we find the third part of the dialogue is that God gives his evidence. And then he pronounces his judgment upon the people for breaking their covenant relationship with him. Now we saw last week that the first symptomatic sign of their spiritual bankruptcy that God cites was their insensitivity to his divine love. They were questioning that God, their covenant God Jehovah, should love them. Wherein have you loved us? Prove, Lord, that you've loved us. And we saw God's pronouncement of his love. I have loved you deeply, verse 2, saith the Lord. And then we saw that the people asked again in verse 2, the people's protest against God's love, Where, how have you loved us? And then we see at the end of verse 2, God gives the proof of his divine love. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, and we tried to explain that very delicate truth last week. But what we're going to look at this evening is the second symptomatic sign of their backsliding. God, if you like, is creating a legal case to these people of why he is going to judge them if they do not repent. The first was their insensitivity to his divine love. And the second symptomatic sign now is not just their doubt of his love. But God accuses them of actually despising his name. Now that is a very serious accusation. But six times... In these verses, the Lord refers to his name. You see it in verse 6, verse 11, and verse 14. My name. God is jealous for his name. The reason is, in the biblical language, his name is a euphemism, another term simply for his character or his reputation. It sums up, who he is in his holy, righteous character and personality. And what God is saying here is, his name is at stake. In other words, his holy reputation is at stake because of his people's backsliding and spiritual indifference and apathy. Now in verse 5, if you look at it, uh, we read it last week, "'Your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, "'The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel.'" It was God's desire that his name should be magnified in all the earth. But now he's coming and accusing his people of not magnifying his name, as they should have done as his chosen nation of Israel, to be a light unto the rest of the world and the Gentile people. But he actually accuses them not only of doubting his love, but despising his holy name. In other words, despising his character. He addresses primarily the priests, and this is so important that we note this right at the outset of our study tonight. He's accusing not just the people, although that's inferred, but particularly the priests or the leaders of the people as despising his name. They were the chief culprits. And if you like, from verses 1 to 5, God is now turning the tables from the people to the priests. Those who should have been leading the people spiritually, those who should have been spiritual and upstanding and defending the name, the reputation, and the characteristics of God, they were the ones who were chiefly guilty in this regard of despising God's name. Now God has already proved his love for them that It's not in dispute. But now he is actually questioning the quality of the people's love for him. It's clear, it's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. This elective love that he has shown to the people of Israel right from the beginning of their existence proves that God has loved them. But now he turns to the spiritual leaders, the priests of the land, and questions their love their respect and reverential fear for him. Now, of course, all the people were guilty, but God rounds his condemnation on the priests. And we could ask the question, why is that? And simply because the responsibility for the spiritual health of the people rested upon the spiritual leaders of the people. Their responsibility was to guard the sanctuary. To make sure that nothing went on within the temple of God that was unseemly or despised his name or took away from the character and the reputation of Almighty God. They were to keep the cultists free from defilement, the sacrifices and the offerings. They were to inspect the sacrifices to make sure that no one was offering a blind lamb or a blemished sacrifice. They were the ones who were to prevent the people bringing lame and sick and weak offerings to God. Yet the indictment that is brought by the prophet of God, Malachi, on them is far from being the ones to protect God's name, they were actually engaging in themselves in these despicable sacrifices. Now before we go on any further, I want us to highlight two lessons that I hope we've already, from the Spirit of God speaking in a still small voice to all our hearts, learned. These will be borne out as we go through this study this evening. Here's the first lesson, and it would do well for all leaders, whoever you are in the place tonight, whether you're an elder or a deacon or a leader in a youth work or a children's work, to mark this. A congregation, whoever the congregation may be, Will never rise above the spirituality of her leaders. The second lesson that outflows that is that with the privileges of leadership must follow the fulfillment of its responsibilities. Privilege brings responsibilities, but no more than in this Christian realm of leadership. And if you're an elder tonight, that's a tremendous privilege. If you're a deacon, that, though you may not think it, is a privilege. To be one who is a leader among youth or among children is a privilege. There are decisions that you get to make that others don't make and don't have a say in. You have a certain amount of God-given power that others perhaps do not have. And you ought to command a respect from others. But all too often those divine privileges are not met with the balance and the parallel of the reflection of the responsibility that God requires of those blessings. The greater the responsibilities, the greater the accountability. That is what God is trying to impress upon these Israelites. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ said, did he not, in Luke's Gospel twelve forty-eight? For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask more. That's why James said in James 3, verse 1, Do not desire to be many masters, for you will incur the greater judgment, a stricter judgment. It's a great privilege to be a master or to be a leader in the household of faith, but there's a greater responsibility upon you. If you can remember our study in Ezekiel, I'm sure you'll not remember this point, but Ezekiel's executioners were to go throughout the people and wipe out those who were unfaithful to the Lord. But in Ezekiel 9, he was told to start in the sanctuary of the Lord. The executioners were to begin slaying those who were meant to stand for God's name because they were despising God's name. Is that not what Peter means when he says judgment must begin in the house of God? That's why the Lord singles out the the priests. Now, if I was asked you the question tonight, what was the highest office in all the nation of Israel? I I doubt that some of you would probably... Reply back, well, it must be the king. But that is false. The priesthood was the highest office in all of Israel. Because a priest was, in the Old Testament, a mediator between God and men. The priest had the holy obedience of taking the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice that would pave man's way to God and offer it. And so he was conveying to God man's repentance, but he was also conveying from God to man God's love, mercy, and God's encumbrant blessing on all the nation. And it was the priest who had the wonderful possession of instructing the people of God in the laws of holiness that God gave them. But more than that, the priest also functioned in Israel's high court as a judge. He had a say on legal matters, matters of purity, ceremonial, uh, ritual qualifications. And to mark the greatness of this office, the priest in his elaborate consecration ceremony was taken and his body was washed clean with water. A blood atonement was made on behalf of his sins, and the unholy anointing oil was poured over him, and official garments of service were put on him, all of them pointing to the awesome privilege, but the awesome responsibility before the Lord of being a priest to Israel for God. But by the time Malachi wrote his prophecy they had desecrated the office they had defamed God's name and they were held in disgrace by all the people. And as far as God was concerned God had given them his very best. He had loved them with his love. He chose them. He gave them the covenants and the blessing. And he expected in return their best from them to him, but what the priests did was this: they took the best for themselves. And we read in verse six, God says to them, "A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where?" Is my fear. And God is accusing them that their sense of propriety was more sensitive on a human level than it was towards God. They had business etiquette, they had etiquette within the family relationship. They knew who their seniors were and the very important people in society and in the religious establishment. But God throws towards them an accusation that they were more responsible in pleasing men than they were in pleasing him. God, in a kind of shock therapy, tries to bring them to their senses. And he contrasts their honor for others with their dishonor for God. A father's meant to a son's meant to honor his father. An employee is meant to honor the employer. And you do it. You do it in Malachi's day, God is saying. You do it in your modern day today. But God asks him, Where is my honor? You're showing impartiality in your reverence. And in verse 8, he challenges them. If ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And what the Lord is saying here is test the quality of your sacrifices by offering them to your Persian governor instead. This time, although the Israelites are in their own land, they're back in Jerusalem, they've built the temple, they're worshiping God, they're still under the empirical room, rule of the Persian Empire. They've still got over them a Persian emperor. And God is saying, give these offerings, the offerings of the blind and the sick and the lame, to your Persian governor. And see if he accepts them. A merely human governor or a master or a father receives and deserves greater honor than the supreme father, the supreme master. God is saying, human leaders get more than you give to the great God of all the earth. What an indictment. Well, what I want to ask to you seeing this Malachi's prophecy is also a modern message to us all. Is if we gave the same commitment that we give to the things of God to our family and to our employer, how many of us here tonight wouldn't be divorced or unemployed? The commitment that we give to the things of God. If we gave the same commitment to our business, to our relations, to our hobbies, to our appearance, to our physical, financial, psychological, emotional well-being, where would we be? The same spiritual principle applies to us today as it did to Israel. And of course, perhaps we, like the priests, are non-plus. Their reaction was, what on earth is God talking about? We don't understand. And they say, "Hi, wherein have we despised thy name? Us. We are the priests. We are not just the people of God. We are the leaders of the people of God. How have we despised thy name? Doesn't that tell a tale? sinful attitudes are often concealed to those that hold them, and often those sinful attitudes are secret faults, and those that are guilty of them are the most oblivious to them. They couldn't even see it. In fact, I would go as far to say that they had deluded themselves into thinking that when it came to worship, when it came to their offerings and their execution of the ministry of the priesthood, something was better than nothing. They were doing something for the Lord. Was that not something better than nothing? Was the lukewarm not better than the cold? Now, God's reply hits at the heart of what I think is an evangelical attitude especially in the Christian West today, you may have heard this statement at times, or at least you may suspect that people are thinking it in their minds. It's the attitude of, well, that'll do. That'll do rightly, people say here in Austin. It's for the church. Or it's for the Lord, and the Lord knows my heart. And the Lord will take what's from my heart, even if it's not the best or even my best. That will do rightly. And what we tend to do is because we live in a dispensation of grace, we think that God should be satisfied with our spiritual leftover. When we've enjoyed our lives, whatever that may be, we scrape the tip bits off our plate and that's God's bit. Malachi says that will not do. In verse 7 he says, Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. Now that bread does not mean the show bread. I believe. It means actually the sacrifices and offerings were sometimes spoken of as bread. And the altar there is literally the tables that many of these sacrifices were made upon. It's not the table of showbread. But they're asking the question, How have we defiled these offerings? And God says this, In that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. Now they ask a question, mark this. How have we defiled the offerings? Now that is a practical question. What have we done, physically done in an action or a deed to defile the offering? Now the answer that God gives back is, no, you haven't done anything. It is something you have said. In that you have said the table of the Lord is contemptible. So what God is saying, it's not just the fact that you have defiled the offering. The problem is not just the offering that you have given, but the problem is the attitude wherewith you have given it. In that ye have said the table of the Lord is contemptible. And they ask the question, wherein have we polluted, some versions say it, the author says correctly, thee. Wherein have we polluted thee? Now here's a lesson for us all. That when you get to the stage, whether as a Christian or not, that you despise not just God, but the things of God. You don't just defile the workings and the mechanics Of an ecclesiastical spiritual system. But God is actually telling us that it is if you are polluting God Himself. I don't take that unadvisedly upon my lips because I don't believe you can pollute God. You can't take away God's holiness by your unholiness. But God is saying, My name, my reputation, My character is at stake in you who are to be a reflection of it. And you are polluting me. It was their attitude. But as many of you will know, it's not long until eventually hidden attitudes become open action. They manifest themselves in our deeds. And in verse 8 we see this. The attitude that they gave the sacrifices and offerings in was manifest in that they actually offered blind sacrifices. They offered lame and sick sacrifices. And God asked, Will I be pleased with those things? And God had reason to ask, for in Deuteronomy 15 21, God had forbade them giving exactly that blind and lame and sick sacrifices. Some scholars even believe, and I'm sympathetic to the view, that some of the people may have brought pure and unblemished sacrifices, but the priests were so corrupt and despised God's name that they actually took the blind, the weak, and the lame, and they swapped them with the good ones, and they took the good ones home to their own farm. In verse 9 we read, And now I pray you, beseech God, that he will be gracious unto you. This hath been by your means, will he regard your person, saith the Lord. I some people interpret that as being a call of God to repentance. See the error of your ways. I don't believe that's what God is saying. I believe it's a statement that is ironical. New King James translates it better, I feel. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept this offering favorably? What he's saying is, oh, go on, repent of this sin. But I'm not going to accept these sacrifices, these offerings. In other words, it doesn't matter how much you pray, how much you ask forgiveness, unless you change their ways, I'll never forgive you. And there we have the doctrine of repentance, as one writer put it, the prayer of the impenitent who has no intention of altering his ways, can only be ineffectual. And What God's saying is, you would be better to shut your mouth. You would be better, my people, to withhold your beggarly apology than insult me of saying you're sorry and saying you're offering the best sacrifices and offering to me what is unacceptable because I am God! who changes not. And the holy and righteous God that will not tolerate hypocrisy and insincerity, these things are repellent to me. And can I tell you tonight, God, though he is a God of grace and love, has not changed. And in verse 10, God says, Who is there even among you that will shut the doors for nothing? Neither do ye kindle the fire on mine altar for nothing. Now some believe that that means that these priests wouldn't even serve God by shutting the doors of the temple or kindling a fire on the altar without being paid for. it. And I'm sure that's the spirit that they had, but the real meaning is this. God is saying, who is there spiritual enough to shut the doors of the temple and put an end to all this hypocrisy? what is God saying? He's saying, I would rather see the temple closed than my name being despised in you Israelites playing religion. Honoring me with your mouth when your hearts are far from me. This slovenly, irreverent, hypocritical worship must cease. Imagine that. God is declaring that it would be better that the doors of the temple would be closed than they offer to him these unfit sacrifices. Maybe you find this hard to believe. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1 verse 11. God says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offering of rams, and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks, or of lambs, or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot away. It is iniquity, even the solemn meetings. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And then Revelation chapter 3. To just see that our God in the New Testament has not changed. You'll remember to the church of Laodicea in verse 15 and 16, out of the many things he says to them, he says this, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And there it is from the very mouth of the Lord himself. I would rather that you were cold. I would rather that the temples of my worship were shut. Then you be lukewarm and engage in some outward sign of godliness without the power. God always rejects indifferent, insincere, hypocritical religion. In verse 11, he looks forward, I believe, to a day when from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same. God's name shall be great among the Gentiles and in every place incense shall, incense shall rise and be offered unto his name as a pure offering. Some people think that the pagans were worshipping God righteously in Malachi's day. That's not what it means and it doesn't condone a pluralistic ecumenism uh, or syncretism in our world today thinking that all roads lead to God. The Roman Catholic Church believes this is talking about the mass It's not talking about anything like that. It's talking about Ezekiel 40 through to 48, where there will be a millennial temple when all the nations will come to the hill of the Lord and worship him. And there will be these offerings that will rise in absolute purity and perfection in Christ. But I want you to feel the import of what God's prophet is saying to the people. You're my chosen people. Yet what I'm looking for now is not you to glorify me. I'm looking for a day that hasn't come yet when the Gentiles, yes, those pagans, those unclean, impure, ceremonially, ritualistic people, they will worship me in a way that you have not. How would you translate that argument into the modern church today? Well, one way you perhaps could do it, maybe not exactly, but you could say, how is it that many of the false religions in our world and cults serve their false deities and salvation ethics in a way that is far more zealous than we as Christians do? How is it? Why is it? Now, we want to learn the lessons from this lax priesthood list. We contract their same lukewarmness in our spiritual life as Christians. And let me leave two practical principles that we can learn as lessons from this lax priestly compromise. Here's the first thing. Their worship was careless and their service was heartless. Their worship was careless and their service was heartless and burdensome. Look at verse thirteen. He said, "Behold, what a weariness it is!" They began to do God's work carelessly. It was wearisome to them. William Kelly said, "This familiarity with the presence of God, unless it be kept up in His fear, borders on contempt." You come familiar with the Lord's table. You come familiar with the worship service. You come familiar with the leaders in the assembly. You come familiar perhaps with the very blood of Christ and the spiritual principles and dogmas and doctrines of Holy Scripture. And you can almost get to the stage in your familiarity with holy things that it breeds contempt. How many Christians today are getting bored with their blessings? How many Christians are wearied in the work? The reason for it all is simply this. The same lesson that we need to learn from these priests. Their heart is not in it. And you will become weary if your heart is not in it. And in Isaiah 43, God actually says to his people, Thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. In Micah 6 he says, O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. Imagine the true people of God becoming wearied with God himself. The outcome was these priests despised and disdained the offerings of the Lord. And verse 13, look at it, actually says they snuffed at it. Literally, they snorted at it. They were treating it with the utmost content. You could translate it like this. They turn their nose up at me, says God. Now here's a lesson for us all. I don't care who you are. But if you despise the things of God, God says you are despising he himself. The two are inextricably linked. That means if you despise a brother in Christ, you are despising one for whom Christ died, who is in the body, a part of Christ himself. As much as you may not like what he is or what he does, you despise God himself. If there are certain doctrines, That you just can't take. So you reject them. Or certain scriptures. That don't fit in with your scheme of things. You're not despising those doctrines. You're despising God. Someone has envisaged the priests in this way. He writes. What a weariness to stand all day long. And be ready whenever someone feels like bringing a sacrifice. What a weariness it must have been for them to slay it, and to skin it, and to gut it, and to cut it up, a filthy, bloody job. And what do we do? What do we get out of it, the priests say? A few pieces of tough meat, unfit for food. What's the point? This is how they reasoned. Their heart was out of the work. They became wearied in it. They were careless in their service because their service became Burdensome. Do you remember everything that Paul went through? I think he suffered in every possible physical and mental way. He was discouraged near to death. He knew every weariness that has ever been known by any servant of God in the ministry. But what could he say in Second Corinthians 4, verse 16 and 17? For which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perishes, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Wasn't it D.L. Moody said, I may become weary in the work, but I will not become weary of the work. When you become weary of the work, you become weary of God. Let us learn the lesson how their worship was careless and their service burdensome and may our worship never be careless and our service never be burdensome. But here's the second lesson. They kept the best for themselves and they thought that they were deceiving God. They kept the best for themselves and they thought that they were deceiving God. At the end of verse 13 we read, about these torn and lame and sick sacrifices that were brought as an offering. God says, should I accept them at your hand? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a meal, and vows and sacrifices unto the Lord, a corrupt thing. They were not giving God their best. Now that is the question we need to ask ourselves tonight. In the mirror of God's word, as we see ourselves do we give God our best? Do we give him our best hours in the day? Do we give him the best years of our life? Do we give him the best cut in the first of our pay packet? Do we give him the best energies of our body? Do we give him the best intellect of our mind? Or do we give God Sunday, maybe a midweek, maybe some other monthly or occasional activity, but he doesn't get our best? Do you remember when David wanted to buy Ornan's field? And Ornan said, no, I'll give it to you because it's for the service of the Lord and it's for the king. I'll give it to you if he got us. What did David reply, I will not take what is yours for the Lord. I will not offer burnt offerings of that which doth cost me nothing. You see, the priests in Malachi's day lost sight that God measures the value of the offering by its worth to the offerer. And if it doesn't cost you anything to give it. Now listen carefully. It's not worth anything. In the sight of God. Verse 14. He tells us. That there were cases where. The priest promised to give a meal sacrifice Unblemished. And after he vowed to give the male sacrifice, he would switch the sacrifice to a corrupt sacrifice, probably a female sacrifice. Do you see this? With their mouth, they're promising to give God what he has asked of them. And then they fulfill the vow, and they give an unsuitable animal. And God said, this is an insult to me, for I am the great king. I am the Lord of hosts. My name is dreadful among the heathen. My friends, God never changes. We know that from Malachi. And though we live in a day of waiting, a day perhaps insignificant in Christian history, we may feel God still says, as he says in Malachi's day, I am the Lord. I change not. He doesn't change. What he expects from us doesn't change. And you remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts chapter 5 and they tried to deceive God. They sold the field and they were making out that they were giving all the proceeds, proceeds of the field to the church. And how did God react? They paid the penalty for their prevarication and God struck them down. Now here's perhaps the most frightening statement Of this message tonight the days of the Levitical priesthood have passed but we as Christians are all priests unto God every one of you does that not frighten you it's a tremendous privilege and never lose the thrill of the blessing but please do not forget about the responsibility because Peter says we are also to bring spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. What are those sacrifices? Warren Wearsby outlines it well. He says the first is our bodies. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you will be able to do what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Have you given your body? You have to give of your substance. Paul said to the Philippian believers that when everybody else forgot him, the Philippians gave to him. And their financial giving to the work of God he says, was like a sweet-smelling savour to the nostrils of God. Are you giving of your substance? For if you're not, you're despising God. Our bodies are an offering. Our substance is an offering. Our praise is an offering. Hebrews 13, 15 by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Are you a praising Christian? When you sing the hymns, do you praise from the depths of your soul? Hebrews thirteen sixteen, the next verse tells us that good works are also our offerings as priests. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased, doing good. We demean good works, don't we? We can't get saved by them. But you can't be saved and not have them. And then finally, one of the offerings is souls won for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Romans 15 and verse 16 talks about this. Paul said that he was given grace to preach to the Gentiles that he should minister Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, Mark, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. A priest is to win souls. You're to give your body. Have you done it? You're to give your substance. Are you doing it? You're to give praise unto God morning and evening. You're to give good works. You're to give souls to God. Are we bringing him our best? Or are we deceiving ourselves and thinking that we're deceiving God? Jesus asked the believer priest today, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? There is a charge to keep. We are priests. There is a trust to keep when you claim Christ as your Lord. Are you keeping it? David Levy in his commentary on Malachi Ends this chapter with this story, and I end my message with it this evening. He tells how Charles Wesley caught this vision that we have been speaking about tonight when he was reading Matthew Henry's Henry's commentary on Leviticus 8.35. And Henry wrote these words, I quote, We shall, every one of us, have a charge to keep, an eternal God to glorify, An immortal soul to provide for and one generation to serve. And Wesley was so inspired by those words that he wrote a hymn entitled, Keep the Charge of the Lord, that ye die not. And later it was entitled, A Charge to Keep Have I. Here's how it goes, and we're going to sing it for a final hymn, but listen. A Charge to Keep I Have. A God to glorify a never-dying soul to save and fit it for the sky. To serve this present age my calling to fulfill, O oh, may it all my powers engage to do my Father's will. Arm me with jealous care as in thy sight to live, and, oh, thy servant Lord, prepare a strict account to give. Help me to watch and pray and on thyself rely and let me ne'er my trust betray, but press to realms on high. Can you sing that hymn sincerely from your heart? If you cannot, and I wonder even if I can myself, why not again, afresh, submit to the Lordship of Christ and give Him all of yourself now and forevermore as a living sacrifice unto God? Father, I know that I. In the light of God's word, feel myself weighed in the balance and found wanting. And Lord, who of us can say that we have apprehended? But O God, we pray that as we have seen the standard that thy holy word implores upon his priests. And we have seen that God does not change nor does what he requires of us, men and women, change. We pray that we will be given grace, that we may not betray our God-given charge, but we will live lives worthy of the calling wherewith we were called. And may we follow our master he said i have come to do thy will o god i have finished the work that thou gavest me to do a perfect high priest we have may we follow him well amen